I'm on YouTube. I've been in a lot of media. I've been in the USA Today. I've been, you know, like that kind of stuff. So now what I'm doing is I'm just trying to amplify the drug crisis in San Francisco to the rest of the world and not just San Francisco, but really statewide in California uh, to tell people about, to make them aware of how this has morphed into after COVID, the next great crisis that, that the United States is facing and really Canada too. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Hey there, welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast here at the Plugged In Media Network studio. As usual, I got my, my homie here, Ryan. Good morning. Hi, homie. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Rick. <laughs> What's happening, buddy? Oh, let's not get we, into that today. Yeah, don't even get me started today. But it's too early in the morning to throw a first F-bomb out. Uh, my morning started at 5 a.m. with F-bombs, so nice. it can only go uphill from here. It's when you pissed on your foot. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so today we've got a really cool guest. Uh, his name is Tom Wolf. We ran into him um, at a conference a little while ago. We've been kind of collaborating back and forth and talking about some things and seeing how we can support each other. Uh, he's based out of San Francisco and, uh, he's got a pretty amazing story and some really cool insight into, uh, you know, what, what certain political models, um, political appetites can result in, um, you know, the right way and potentially the wrong way to treat, uh, substance abuse and, and homelessness and combat some of those compounding things, um. So yeah, welcome to welcome to the episode, Mr. Wolf. Thank you, brothers. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Wolf. That doesn't sound right. It sounds like yeah, that's, uh, my, that's my dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a Quentin Tarantino show. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Wolf. We'll just go with Tom. There you go. Yeah, Tom. So welcome. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history, and we'll go from there. Well, so, yep, my name is Tom Wolf. I am a recovery advocate based out of San Francisco and uh, advocate for uh, recovery-oriented systems of care to be implemented throughout our country in the United States. As you know, uh, we are, uh, San Francisco has kind of become the epicenter of the drug and overdose crisis in the United States. It's the focus of a lot of media, both positive and negative, mostly negative these days because of the homeless crisis and the drug crisis that we're struggling with on our streets. And so mm. I'm you know, my advocacy is to is to bring awareness to that, and I don't just come by that randomly. I am uh, in recovery from addiction myself. On June twenty fourth of this year, I'll have four years uh, clean and sober. Awesome. And uh, I also uh, am formerly homeless as well. So, you know, my story began actually not that long ago in early two thousand fifteen. Uh, just to set the stage, I'm a regular middle class guy. I'm married. I have two kids. Uh, at that time in twenty fifteen, I had a job with the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, making $80,000 a year, uh, owned a home. I had my own little slice of the pie and I had foot surgery. And uh, after foot surgery, I was prescribed a 30-day supply of 10 milligram oxycodone for the pain. And I brought that home with me and I didn't use it as directed. That's the best way I can say it. I started abusing those those pills. And the reason I started abusing those pills is that, you know, I would take one and it would make me feel a little loopy and I was in pain. 
So one day I decided to take two, got a little more loopy and, uh, and, and even less pain. And so one day I said, screw it, and I'll take three of them, <laughs> 30 milligrams of oxycodone. And that seemed to kind of be like the, the line. When I hit that 30 milligrams, I went from be feeling loopy to euphoria, to just being straight up, uh, not just high, but, but this euphoria and that all my problems melted away. Any marital problems I was having, any financial problems I was having, plus the pain in my body was all gone for a few hours, and I loved that feeling. And so I continued to take three at a time instead of one. And, uh, and I started getting creative with it. I, I, I'd heard that, you know, you can crush these up and snort them. So I decided to give that a try. Uh, I was chewing them like candy, uh, things like that. And instead of the supply lasting me a month, it, it was, you know, it was about a week in and I was starting to run out of pills. And so I started to try to taper off these pills mm. and I started feeling uh, not very good. Uh, and that's a, a, what, what I didn't know at the time is that I was in withdrawal and that I was basically getting dope sick uh, from trying to taper off this 30 milligram dose of these pills that I was taking. And I didn't like that feeling at all. And I knew I couldn't get a refill from my doctor. So I made a kind of a fateful decision to kind of seek those drugs out on the street. And I actually looked it up on Google. I Googled, where can I buy pills on the street in San Francisco? And it actually brought me to YouTube. Uh, to several different cool. videos with references to a place called Pill Hill. I thought I thought you were going to say you too. Brought me <laughs> yeah, to yeah, you well. too, guys. Like, whoa, no easy, Tom. No, it wasn't us. <laughs> YouTube. It was a good old YouTube. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I referenced this, uh, this corner in the Tenderloin called Pill Hill, which is Golden Gate and Leavenworth Streets in, in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And the Tenderloin, if you know, has kind of long been known for kind of like the place where you can get drugs in the city. And anyway, so I drove down there with a boot on my foot and I got out of the car, scared out of my mind, but I was in full withdrawal from these drugs and I was sweating, where am I going to get more? And it took me about three minutes and I find, found five or six different guys selling a variety of different pills from 30 milligram Roxy's all the way up to 80 milligram OP80's. Wow. And I started uh, purchasing those pills on the street at $30 a pill. And over the next two years, my addiction progressed. So when I was at my peak, I was taking seven 80 milligram OP80s a day, which is oh, 560 shit. milligrams of oxycodone daily wow. just to function, just to mm -hmm. maintain, just to feel normal. And, uh, you know, at $30 a pill, seven pills a day, that's $210 a day times seven days a week. You can imagine how quickly everything spiraled out of control. And, uh, you know, at the time I was still working. I was working up until 2016 in my job. I guess you could say I was a functioning addict at that point. Um, but uh, I wasn't paying my bills either, including the mortgage. And what was really bad about this is that I was hiding all of that from my wife, who was mm -hmm. also in complete denial. And that's something that we don't talk about enough uh, when we talk about families and friends and community that's affected by addiction. There's a lot of denial and a lot of codependency that goes on uh, in, in these homes and in these relationships. And my wife definitely was part of that. And uh, the levy broke one day when uh, one fateful day she actually intercepted the mail instead of me, and there was a foreclosure notice in huh. the mail saying surprise, that my house. Eh? Yeah, surprise, surprise! I hadn't paid the mortgage in months because I was taking all that money and buying drugs. And uh, you know, of course, she freaked, freaked out. That was not a good day. Uh, I don't like to think about it, but you know, it is what it is. And uh, she cut me off from the money or from most of my money, and. Um, so I made a fateful decision in uh, you know, late 2016 to switch over to heroin. 
And I did. I walked one block down the street one day in the Tenderloin to Golden Gate and Hyde, which is where all the organized drug dealers are standing, slinging dope. And I bought a dime of heroin, uh, an eighth of a gram of heroin for $10. And uh, I started using intravenously at that point. And then my life really spiraled out of control. I ended up quitting my job. I just stopped going to my job because all I wanted to do all day was get high. Uh, I was, high again, hiding all of that from my wife. And uh, that began my journey into heroin addiction, which you know later manifested into getting sepsis from missing when I would mm -hmm. shoot up intravenously. I ended up spending six days in the intensive care unit, the hospital. You think that that would have been enough, but instead, after that, I just switched to smoking heroin on foil, uh, doing flaps. I think that's what they call them up in Canada, of heroin, and uh, and then you know the levy finally broke. Like the final straw was that you know, one night. In uh, early 2018, I uh, stole some money out of my wife's purse at about 2 o'clock in the morning, took the car, went down to the Tenderloin neighborhood, and I didn't go home for 11 days. I went on an 11-day bender. Wow. And uh, I remember the day the cops found me out there. Uh, they came knocking on my door. And you would think they would have found me sooner, but, you know, in the Tenderloin, and you have to understand in San Francisco, it's kind of like the east side of Vancouver you can get lost in the tenderloin for years and nobody will find you. That's yeah. just how it is. And people don't want to be found and some people don't want to find people that are out there. So I was left to my own devices for 11 days, burning through whatever money I had left. Cops came knocking on my window. I had foil and straws all over the car, crack pipes all over the car. And instead of arresting me, they just told me, hey, your wife filed a missing persons report and she's looking for you. You need to go home. Wow. And... Oh. Uh, Started up the car, drove home. My wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying, I got you up bed at a rehab. You either need to go to rehab or you need to get out. And uh, at that very moment, I was in full withdrawal from heroin. I was definitely dope sick. And uh, I made the decision at that moment to leave. And I chose addiction and drugs over my own family. And I walked out and I spent the next six months sleeping in a doorway in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco, homeless. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of the background on my story. Yeah, it's uh it's it's terrifying to think how quickly, you know, when we when we see that destitute population, it's it's terrifying to think how quickly, you know, we I don't know. I think there's a perception that they've always been that way or yeah. or they, you know, and it's like it's scary to think how quickly it can go there. And uh like, you know, just for example, your story like from a matter of years to even shorten up to months really from employed wife, family house to living in a doorway. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And with opioid yeah. addiction, just like any addiction, right? It doesn't matter what drug you're using, but that you laid it out so well, Tom, like your tolerance builds up, right? You get into withdrawal, you're looking for more. It takes more to get high. Eventually you're on the street looking for a substitute that's cheaper and easier to get. Right. And suddenly okay. you're an IV heroin user. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, you know, and, and, if, and after that, I couldn't shoot up anymore because I'd gotten sepsis. So I was chasing the dragon mm -hmm. instead and smoking it on foil, which is what you see a lot of now, nowadays with fentanyl. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was my life. My life had gotten so small. And that's the thing about addiction is it makes your life get small mm -hmm. uh, and you start losing control of everything. Uh, but I still remember one day that when I was out on the street, kind of like the one of the low points for me uh, is that I was sitting between two cars on the curb. And I had a piece of foil and a dime of heroin in my hand. And I was like, at least I have control over this. 
I remember saying that. Right. And that, that was my life at that point. And uh, that went on for several months. Um, you know, I had to get creative in finding ways to support my drug habit out there on the street. Um, I was shoplifting, of course. I was boosting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then one day, one of the drug dealers um, came up to me and told me in Spanish, because most of our drug dealers out here in San Francisco are uh, young, undocumented uh, kids from Honduras. And what I mean kids, is like they're like 18 to 25. Um, and it's just all part of this cartel-fueled organized network of drug dealers that are out there. And he came up to me in Spanish and he said, hey, Tom, quieres trabajo? Want to work? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, here, hold this. And he handed me a, a gym sock that was filled with bindles, heroin, cocaine, and baggies of meth. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, put that in your pocket. And then he handed me a dime of heroin as payment. And uh, that's how I started supporting my habit. I started uh, becoming a mule or holding for the drug dealers out there on the street. Wow. And uh, once they got to know me and they started trusting me, I was holding for multiple drug dealers on the street. Um and that's, uh, you know, I was making, you know, 80, somewhere between 80 and $200 a day worth of drugs. So I was getting paid in drugs. It was either heroin or crack cocaine that I was getting paid in because those were kind of my drugs of choice that I was using out there. And uh, one day, it was, I still remember it. It was Sunday, April 29th, 2018. I was out there on the street and I was holding for six different dealers at the same time. So I had six gym socks in my jacket. And I didn't know that the police were doing a sting that day. Oh, boy. And they had me on camera uh, handing these socks back and forth to the dealers. And they came driving up the street. And in San Francisco, there's a lot of one-way streets. So the cops came driving up the wrong way on a one-way street. And when you see that, you know no, stuff's sh- about to go down. Shit's going down, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shit's going down. So everybody took off running, including me. Right? Yeah. I'm running around the corner, and I got, I got like five ounces, <laughs> four and a half, five ounces of drugs on me, right? And I'm booking it around the corner run down to the bus stop and I'm kind of hiding in the bus stop, which is like a canopy and uh, waiting for the bus to come. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to hop on the bus, go around town and then come back an hour later and give everybody their dope back. And I remember seeing it coming down the street. The bus was actually coming towards me and I turned around and an unmarked car had pulled up and two cops got out and they were like, we got him, we got him. Oh, it turns out that that whole sting, they were looking <clears throat> for the guy that was holding, which was me. Uh, Mr. Wolf. And uh, yeah, I, I got arrested for the first time in my life at 48 years old. I got arrested. Right. I got taken to custody. I had four and a half ounces of drugs on me. And I thought, you know, I'm thinking like the wire, you know, I'm going to go to prison, right? I spent 16 hours in custody. And they released me on my own recognizance right back out to the street. I went right back to that same same block, showed the drug dealers my jail ID, the wristband that I had on my wrist, <clears> proof <throat> that I got busted so they wouldn't hack me up with a machete for right. taking their dr- taking their drugs. They know that that happens, so they were prepared for that. And they said, okay, Tom, it's okay. Here yeah. you go. Here's a dime of heroin for your trouble. The cost of doing business, eh? That's right. The cost of doing business. And so <laughs> I, I got caught up in that washing machine over the next three months. I ended up getting arrested a total of six times in a three-month period between April and June of 2018. Five out of those six times, I was released within three days on my own recognizance without bail. And every one of those times, I was released back into homelessness, back out to the street. And it wasn't until the sixth time, and I was already wearing an ankle monitor, that I got arrested. And then I ended up spending three months in county jail um, <clears throat> where I was offered medically assisted treatment. They gave me Suboxone to help me kick the withdrawals from the heroin. And by that time, I had also started using fentanyl because fentanyl was hitting the streets already at that mm-hmm. point. And, uh, and then I was clean in jail. I was sober. I wasn't in recovery, but I was clean. And that kind of gave me a moment to kind of, you know, reflect 
on where my life had gone and how quickly my life had spiraled all the way down to the point. And this was my rock bottom is that I was sitting in jail and I came to this realization that I have now completely lost control of everything in my life. I have no control of anything. I couldn't talk to my wife and kids. They'd put, she'd put a restraining order on me. I had no job. I had no money. And now I didn't have my drugs or my freedom either. So I truly lost everything. And uh, I remember one day, about three months in, picking up the phone and calling my brother, who I hadn't talked to in a year, because he was pissed at me because I had been borrowing money from yeah. family, stealing <clears throat> money from my parents, stealing money from my wife, and he knew what was going on. And he says, look, I'll bail you out of jail on one condition, that you go to rehab. I can get you a treatment bed at the Salvation Army. And I said, okay, because I didn't want to be in jail anymore. I would have done anything to get out of jail because jail sucks. It wasn't like it was all horrible and everything. It was just sucks. It's mm -hmm. like daycare for grownups, you know, with and just sitting there eating really bad food, uh, you know, and having a, a roommate that was out of his mind. He was in jail because he tried to hack off his girl's leg with a with an axe because he was high on meth and thought she had bugs crawling all over her leg. Wow. So, I mean, these are the kinds of people I was in custody with, right? So, yeah, I'd have done anything to get out. So, I agreed. And the next day, he bailed me out. Took me to the Salvation Army ARC, which is the Adult Rehabilitation Center here in San Francisco, and he dropped me off. And I spent the next six months in an inpatient program in San Francisco where I found recovery. And uh, that's kind of how I found my road to recovery. And I just want to say about that, that you know, a lot of people, and it's an abstinence-based program that I went to, and you hear a lot of things right now on social media and out there in the drug policy world that are you know, moving away from <coughs> abstinence-based treatment denigrating 12-step as a recovery model and mm -hmm. things like that. I just want to say one thing. That program, in addition to helping me find recovery, it ended my homelessness. I was housed, clothed, fed, given 12-step counseling, all for free. Right. For free. I did not pay a dollar to go to that rehab. And, you, you know, people pay, they say, oh, rehab's expensive. You spend thousands of dollars on this and on that. I didn't pay a dime. And that, that program literally, like, really, truly, like, helped save my life. And I'll always be grateful for that, to have that opportunity, you know. And, uh, and that's kind of how, you know, my recovery was born and then my advocacy was born out of that. And that's a whole different story that we can talk about, too. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the really important things for you, um, you know, to, to note that you spoke about there was the fact that you were, you were clean, but you weren't in recovery. And the, the, those are two very different very different things. Um, and, you know, we see it a lot in, in community and in meetings and all, all over the place, right, guys? That, uh, you know, I've talked to guys with years, years under their belt, and uh, I wouldn't classify them as in recovery at all. They're still hating every, you know, they're just white knuckling their way through life, and that's no way to be. I remember, you know, even in early recovery, meeting a couple of those guys going, shit, like, that's what, you know, because to me, that's what recovery was, right? Is I didn't know any better just other than, well, if you're not using, you're clean. And I remember looking at a couple of those guys going like, if that's, if that's what this looks like, I, I'm going back out because I don't want none of that. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, the thing is, is that recovery is way more than just not using drugs or alcohol anymore. For it's, sure. It's learn, learning how to live by a different set of principles than how you've been living. And it's also about digging deep and addressing those traumas or significant emotional events in your life that may have led you to your addiction. So, you know, that requires effort, 
requires willingness, but it, it does require that you really learn a different set of principles to live by. And that's mm. to me what recovery is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We talk about that all the time is that, you know, the drugs and the alcohol weren't our problem. That was our solution to all the underlying problems we had until you become addicted. And then suddenly there's no turning back. You lose control over everything. Right. But it's so true. And we talk about this, you know, with people in the community as well. And I'd love to hear your take on it, Tom, is, you know, we use the language clean and sober and in recovery. And what is that? You know, I hear you use it as well. I'm clean today, right? We get a lot of pushback about using that language and how language matters. And I get that, but you know, there's millions of people in this world that use that same language and it's worked for them and it's worked for me and I have no real problem using it. What are your thoughts around that? So there, there's a whole movement to change all kinds of terms. People oh, don't yeah. want to use the term addict. They don't want to use the term recovering addict. They don't want to use the term addiction. The word addiction, everything is now substance use disorder, mm-hmm. or OUD, SUD, all that stuff. And these are all terms that were initially created to reduce stigma right. around the disease of addiction, which I understand. But reducing stigma and then stigmatizing other people that continue to use to choose to use that term is is are two different things Mm -hmm. and that's what we're having trouble with they have become conflated in that if i choose to call myself a recovering addict someone's going to come back at me and say you shouldn't call yourself that you're wrong yeah that's not reducing stigma that's actually creating stigma yeah Uh, so what we couldn't agree more with you Right. What we all need to do is respect each other's space and respect what each other wants to be called. If I choose to call myself a recovering addict, well, then damn it, I'm a recovering addict, and, and you have no right to tell me what I want to call myself. That I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. And it drives people nuts when I say that, yet they're the <coughs> same people that are, are denigrating using these terms because they're stigmatizing also practice exclusion by trying to push you out of that space. And say and say that you don't belong there, and that could not be more hypocritical. And uh, it just shows you that many of these activists and drug policy experts, and I say that in quotation marks, uh, don't really have real experience with addiction. They just studied it in a book, or went to school, or wrote some peer-reviewed papers on it. Or you know, some of them too. I'll just say it, just like these old timers that you meet at AA meetings. That some people are like, "Yeah, that guy's kind of an asshole because." You know, he, he's kind of finger wagging at you. These folks on the other side are doing the same thing. They, they got clean 20 years ago, and now they write all these peer-reviewed papers on harm reduction, and they finger wag at you and tell you that what you're doing is wrong, yet recovery is a personal journey. Mm-hmm. It's a personal journey that you experience, so how you choose to identify yourself is really your business. Uh, and nobody should be saying that one is right and one is, one is wrong. All those terms should be accepted, period, because for me, look – they call it Alcoholics Anonymous for a reason, right? People like to go into their recovery and then remain anonymous a lot of the time, and they retire, they, they move back into their private life, and eventually you never know that that person is in recovery because they don't look like someone that, that we have this view in our head of how an addict might look like or an alcoholic might look like. And then there's people like me and people like you that have said, screw it. We're going to speak up and we're going to, we're going to talk about our recovery, and we're going to put it out there for the world to see and I think that it's really important that more of us do that because there's a really a lot of misnomers out there about what addiction is, about re- what recovery is, and what it requires for so mm-hmm. many people. And for so many people, and uh, I won't say everyone, but for so many people, it requires a spiritual aspect. 
right? You hear about that. It's a spiritual solution and all that stuff. You hear that all the time. And that doesn't mean organized religion and people conflate that too. You could worship a tree or the sky. I don't care. As long as it, you, you've decided that you're going to look within and, and look towards spirituality as a tool to help guide you through this world, mm -hmm. uh, I think doing that actually takes a lot of pressure off of the individual themselves to actually continue to move forward in recovery. Yeah, I know it comes down when I went through my program and I identified my um, character defects. Control was uh, pretty high on that list, right? And it was always trying to control people, places, things, and outcomes. And, and uh, you know, and I could mask a really good, I could mask a really selfish decision with what appeared to be kindness on the outside. And, uh, and, and that was a big thing for me is, is finding that spiritual aspect. And, and again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the farthest guy from organized religion for sure. But um, it, it, I'll be the first one to say it's absolutely a spiritual journey because I'm nowhere near the person I was in, in active use that I, that I am in recovery. And it's, it's completely related to it, a spiritual experience, but you know, the, uh, when I first came into the rooms too, you know, I remember looking up at the wall and all the steps on the wall and anything that say, said prayer or God, I was like, no, I'm good, man. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll do what I can with seven, seven out of 12 steps. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't until it was really explained to me that like, you know, it's, it's not what, you, it's not what you perceive it to be. It's, it's whatever, it's whatever you need it to be. And like any, any relationship, right. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, relationships grow and evolve with, with people and with organizations and no different than my, my relationship with my, my higher powers constantly evolving and changing and, you know, still miles away from an organized religion, but, uh, I'm, I'm definitely more spiritual than I've ever been for sure. Well, think, think the way I'd look at it is that look, so many people, like I interview people, I have a, a YouTube channel now and I talk to people that are in recovery that. Yeah. Yeah. Plug your shit, man. What's your YouTube and, channel? <laughs> well, it's called voices of recovery and it's on YouTube right now. And, uh, it's, it's primarily interviews with people that have experienced homelessness and that are in recovery. And I get them to basically just share. I ask them to share their story of what happened. Uh, the, the, the last one I just dropped yesterday is with this great, great lady named Victoria, who's a friend of mine who was not only a drug addict, but she was also drug dealing. She was trafficking, mailing meth across state lines, and she got popped and went to federal prison. Uh, but within all of that space, she also found recovery, and it changed her life. And now she's working you know, in adult probation and helping people uh, in their reentry division to find that they're exiting prison to find recovery resources so that they can start a new life. And I think that that's beautiful that she's giving back in that way. And so look, it's, it's kind of like one thing that they all have in common is they all have early childhood trauma or they had all had a significant emotional event that happened to them that led them to self-medicate mm -hmm. that eventually led them to their addiction. So something with it that, that happened to them had manifested with inside of them that had led them to self-medicate and fall into addiction. Okay, the trauma of what happened. It was internalized. They, they self-medicate, and there you go. Well, recovery is kind of the same way, but in reverse. And that recovery comes from within, right? Just as you experience that trauma that you've internalized inside of you that led you to self-medicate, recovery also comes from within, and finding that faith and that spirituality that's in you actually helps heal you from that trauma. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important that we recognize that uh, and, and have that be as part of the conversation for many people in recovery. Is that everybody? No. And there's a lot of different ways to get, get to clean and sober. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to be in recovery, but the, it's but it's so much more than just stopping the drugs it's about it's about finding a different way to live a different outlook on life you know for me it's about looking through life through a lens of gratitude mm-hmm. instead of you know being appreciative of what i do have instead of what i don't have i still can think back not that long ago about you know i had so many resent resentments about how come we don't have more money how come i can't have more credit how come I can't sleep good at night? Why does my back hurt? Why am I overweight? Why Why is this? Why is that? All of these things, all these resentments. And now I'm just like, shit, man. I'm, I, I wake up every morning and it's like, I'm healthy and I'm grateful for that. I have my wife and my kids back in my life. I'm grateful for that. I've got a roof over my head. I'm grateful for that. I'm making money. Am I rich? No, but am I making enough to make a living? Yeah, I'm grateful for all of those things. And it's just such a simple flip of the switch. Um, <clears throat> that's so hard for people to overcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it takes that significant emotional event to trigger that willingness to find that recovery from within that can help you flip that switch. And that's kind of what happened to me. Wow. I love how you put that, how the recovery has to come from within. Cause that's, it's so true, right? You can have tens of hundreds of people lined up and want the recovery for you and recognize how awful it's getting for you and all these things. Right. But until you want it yourself, it's next to impossible to get there. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it, and it's all been all screwed up in the, in the treatment and recovery community. You know, there's another big movement that's happening right now to move away from mandated treatment for people. Mm-hmm. But you know, the program I was in, like there were 97 guys in the program. 94 of them were mandated to treatment by law enforcement, right. okay? And, you know, the graduation rate was 25%, like it is at every rehab, including harm reduction programs. Yeah. The graduation rate's about a quarter of the people that make it through the first time, right, that actually last through the program. But that means that there's a quarter of that population that found recovery mm-hmm. in that program. And because they were given a choice of sitting in jail or prison or actually going to that program. And, you know, some of them are still clean, are, are still clean, are still sober today. And that's a tribute to the fact that recovery does work. Does it work for everybody? No. Does it work always the first time? Absolutely not. Most people we know have been to rehab, but most people I know have been to rehab multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still get patronized daily by people in the recovery community and in the harm reduction community that say, oh, man, it's so amazing that you haven't relapsed yet. And, you know, most people in your situation have already relapsed at least once. And I'm just like, you know what? F you, man. Yeah, this is, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do to, to stay in this position, to stay in recovery. Let's celebrate that instead of pointing out the fact that so many other people are struggling with it. And, uh, you know, recovery is a lifetime thing. It's not something like, oh, you know, I went to a 28 day program and now I'm good and go back to my life. It's a lifetime thing. So 20 years from now, when I'm an old geezer, I'm still going to be in recovery actively practicing recovery and still calling myself a drug addict because I will always be a drug addict for the rest of my life. And that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to be celebrated that you were able to overcome that. And now you're, you are now living your life by a different set of principles, Mm -hmm. even though you still have that monster or that beast inside of you. And the way I look at it is that I have this, this monster inside of me, but it's on, it's on ice. It's like in a block of ice. 
asleep. But it's still there, and it will always be there. It doesn't ever go away. You just keep it on ice, and that's recovery. Wow. That, uh, yeah, the, the way you said that reminds me of a conversation. Uh, we were in a meeting with some um, government-type agencies, and uh, one of the one of the managers said, Damien was with us, our other partner, and uh, she said, wow, you know, it must be so hard living in recovery every day. <laughs> and he just laughed at her, and he's like, no, it's easy. Living, living as an active user is hard. She's like, this is easy, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and just, you could see she was shocked by it. Right. And it's like, no, no, no. Once you get this and you start living these principles, it's, uh, it's not hard at all to, you know, like as much as it would be easy to slip, man, I, it would be hard to go back to that, you know, to willingly go back to that life now. For sure. Right. You know, when I, people ask me like, what, what was the lifestyle like when you were living on the street? What was it like to be a homeless drug addict on the street? And the answer, the first thing I always say to everybody is it was exhausting. Yeah. It was exhausting because I spent the whole day chasing dope. That's why it was exhausting. The whole, I spent the whole day trying to figure out a hustle so I could get my drugs. That's exhausting. Okay. That's, that is so far more exhausting than waking up and sitting down here with a cup of coffee talking to you guys. I'd much rather be doing that. <laughs> yeah. This is way more comfortable than that. I don't, I don't, it's just weird. It's like, I remember early in my recovery, I went to an AA meeting and uh, there were a bunch of like old biker guys in there and everything that had like 25 years clean. You know, he's like a, one guy's like an auto mechanic. They got all tatted up and everything. And I remember this old, this old guy standing up saying, you know, I've been in, I've been clean for like 22 years he's like, I've got more money in the bank now than I know what to do with. And I don't even make a lot of money. And I just remember looking at that guy saying, I want to be that guy. Yeah. I want to be that guy. And it's just funny how in recovery, you know, I'm not spending $210 a day on dope. Right? For sure. So now I have, you know, I had enough money to take my kids to Disneyland over spring break. You know, it's like that would have never happened when I was using. <laughs> that was just a freaking pipe dream. Yeah. But to actually turn around and be able to do it and take him down there and spend a bunch of money, which I did. It's expensive. Uh, it was worth every freaking penny too. And to do it knowing that, Hey man, I'm not going into debt for this. Mm -hmm. That's, those are the gifts. Those are the cash and prizes that they talk about. Those are the gifts that you get in recovery. You would never get if you were using dope or drinking a, a bottle a day because you're spending all your money on that. Drugs aren't free. People got to remember that they're not free. So, People are out there on the street and they're homeless and they're struggling with addiction. It's not free. So they're figuring out a way to get that money to buy their drugs. Mm -hmm. Some people it's two, three, four hundred dollars a day that they're making out there uh, off the off the backs of exploiting uh, either others or other systems to get that money. And that's something that we should uh, we need to really address. Which I think is maybe a good segue into kind of what you're doing now with your advocacy in uh, in, in San Francisco and nationally for that. Or well, internationally, even we were you we were up in Canada, I guess. So, um, yeah, maybe if you want to speak to some of the issues that you've seen develop over over time in uh, in San Francisco specifically, and uh, so, with some of the policy that uh, has has fed that problem. Well, you know, my my advocacy was born on Twitter, um, and it's because back in 2018, when you get arrested by the SFPD, they post your mugshot on Twitter. 
Uh, and so my mugshot was sitting on Twitter saying Tom Wolf continues to be arrested on the 300 block of Golden Gate Avenue, this time with a bag of drugs at his feet. And uh, I just remember, damn, I'm looking for a job. If someone Googles up Tom Wolf yeah. San Francisco, the only thing they're going to see is this mugshot on Twitter, and no one's ever going to hire me. So I remember I responded to that tweet saying, hey, I'm now in recovery. And at the time, I had eight months. I said, I'm eight months clean and sober. Thank you for you know helping me turn my life around. And that tweet went viral on Twitter and on Reddit. And uh, and it got it got caught by the local news media. And I, they started doing stories on me. I ended up on CNN. Uh, and so I just kind of decided after that exposure to just keep tweeting about this, to keep talking about it. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, if this caught fire from Twitter, let's see what I can do on this platform to uh, to get my message out there. And so I started talking about not just recovery, but I started talking about what happened to me on the street on Twitter. I started talking about the drugs that are out there, who's selling the drugs, who's dying from the drugs, why are they dying, all of those things. And that kind of has expanded now into a larger platform. Um, so now I have a pretty strong presence on Twitter. I, uh, I'm in, uh, uh, I'm on, I'm on YouTube. I've been in a lot of media. I've been in the USA today. I've been, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, um, now what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm just trying to amplify the drug crisis in San Francisco to the rest of the world and not just San Francisco, but really statewide in California, Mm -hmm. uh, to tell people about to make them aware of how this has morphed into after COVID, the next great crisis that, that the United States is facing and really Canada too, uh, where we're facing, you know, we had 103 OD deaths in the United States last year. We had uh, 12,000 in California. We had 650 in San Francisco. Um, <clears throat> we have this porous border with our southern neighbor where we have tons and tons of drugs coming across unregulated that are getting into the drug supply and that those drugs themselves are now synthetic. They're made in a lab. They're no longer growing opium poppies and harvesting them and all that stuff to make heroin. Mm -hmm. They're just taking three precursor chemicals, mixing them together to make illicit fentanyl, pressing them into fake pills or making them into a powder, shipping them across the border and they're selling it. And it's in, it's impacting the entire community. Uh, especially people that use drugs even recreationally because it's contaminated the street drug supply and that if you buy cocaine chances are there's fentanyl in it if you buy meth chances are there's fentanyl in it so now you have kids as young as 14 years old that are purchasing uh what they think is you know a recreational drug like maybe xanax off of snapchat and it turns out that that drug is actually laced with illicit fentanyl and uh so you know we have a lot of grieving parents now that are starting to rise up here in california uh, there's a couple of different organizations. There's Mothers Against Drug Deaths. There's the Victims of Illicit Drugs. Um, there's another uh, organization called Poison to Death, which are basically made up of aggrieved parents mm-hmm. who've lost their kids to uh, what they call fentanyl poisoning, uh, which is which means that they had no intention of using fentanyl. They purchased a different drug, most of it off of social media, uh, most of it off of Snapchat. I'll call them out. That is what it is. Yeah. And uh, and they're dying of drug overdose unexpectedly, which is really a poisoning. And so what's ironic is that, of course, that's being reported in the media is that these kids died of drug overdose like they did something wrong. And they didn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you went into a bar and you ordered a martini and your bartender added arsenic to it and you died of arsenic poisoning, that's a poisoning, not an overdose. So this is the exact same thing as that. It's the exact same argument. That you're buying a Xanax bar 
but it's laced with illicit fentanyl on purpose and then you're dying from it that's a poisoning and so you know these are the kinds of things that are happening and at the same time that this is happening in california we have moved to decriminalize a lot of uh, a lot of laws around drug possession and around drug dealing and that's actually not just in california but that's oregon washington i know they have issues with that up in canada as well for sure where you've got people that are you know selling a drug now that is that has killed more people than any drug has ever killed that's on the street before other than alcohol um, and they're getting away with it nothing's happening to them mm -hmm. uh, under the whole guise of the war on drugs has failed without diving into any further explanation at all as to um, as to what that really means and uh, you know it's just kind of created this scenario where like the drug traffickers and the drug dealers are thinking this is party time yeah and if you look at San Francisco as an example uh, right now in San Francisco we have four to five hundred drug dealers in like a 10 block radius of San Francisco selling all selling the same product they're all selling illicit fentanyl and they're selling meth on the street and they're doing so virtually unabated, right? The police arrest them, they seize the drugs, they take these guys down to the jail and the district attorney releases them within five days and they go right back out to the street and sell. And it's almost like a cancer. So the argument from the anti-war on drugs people has been, well, if you take one dealer off the street, someone's gonna step in to replace them. That's true. But if you release the first dealer after five days and he goes back to the street, now you have two dealers selling instead of one. Mm -hmm. So now you have even more people that are spreading this poison that's killing people on the street and they're doing so with relative impunity. And so that's what I call out. I, that's one of the main things that I call out. I mean, it's bullshit. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Um, what's really happening out here is that in San Francisco last year in one neighborhood, the Tenderloin, the SFPD pulled 26.6 kilos of illicit fentanyl off the street in just one neighborhood. Wow. Nobody knows that. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's certainly not publicized by all the harm reduction folks and the pro-safe supply folks that this is out there. Um, you know, and they think there's this faction out there that thinks that this safe supply movement is going to stop all of that from happening. Well, let me tell you something about safe supply. Okay. I interviewed a friend of mine that he's older than me, he's like 58, he's been in recovery about eight years, and he was badly addicted to pills and heroin. And he used to go to pain clinics in the 90s and the early 2000s here in California, and he, you know, for, for back pain, but it was because he was a drug addict. Yeah. And they would prescribe him in one month, 280, 80 milligram Oxycontin tablets, and 90, 1600 milligram fentanyl suckers, which are like lollipops that you suck on yeah. every single month. Wow. That is the United States' experience with safe supply. That is why there's there's resistance to safe supply. And in, I don't think in my lifetime safe supply is ever going to come to the United States in a meaningful way. And it's not that because I don't understand the concept of safe supply. It's because we cannot trust who is going to administer mm -hmm. that safe supply to the masses. <clears throat> we cannot. We had doctors doing it before. They betrayed 20 million people in this country by over-prescribing those drugs. Why do you think anything is going to be different now? How can they show us that anything's going to be different now? And that's yeah. one of the things that I advocate for is like this sensible approach to drug policy. Let's focus on recovery instead. Mm -hmm. you, know, have, you know, making it easier for someone to continue to use a deadly and highly addictive drug in perpetuity is not recovery. 
that is what is happening now. We need to actually focus on 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 finding tools and finding methods of ways to get people off of those drugs. For sure. Because I, I promise you, in recovery, all of us will attest to that, that life is better now than when we were using. For sure. Yeah. I know we talked about that during that conference with yourself, I believe, and with uh, Dr. Nathaniel Day. And, you know, we sat around and discussed the concept of safe supply and how, you know, let's say that all got brought in today. And just like you alluded to, Tom, like who is going to be handing this safe supply out, right? And and in 10 years from now, is that going to be the next Oxycontin crisis? Because this has just flooded the market, right? People are over giving out safe supply and suddenly there's no end to it. Where does, you know, what does that look like down the road? Where Where is this going to lead us to? We just keep handing out safe supply of drugs if that's the answer to addiction. Well, and and to to add to that, you know, it's, it's economics, right? Drug dealing is cartels. It's, it's based on the principles of economics, supply and demand, right? So the more, so the more supply there is the, like the demand goes down, price goes down. It becomes more attainable to anybody. Right. I mean, you know, there's a reason that like kids aren't doing cocaine. It's because it's expensive. Right. So like as, as these, Drugs become supplied. Um, the the ex the accessibility to them increases significantly, and mm. therefore drives the price down, and makes now it way easier for a kid, a you know, a sixteen year old kid going to a high school party to pop a fentanyl lollipop because it's five bucks. Yeah, it's cheaper than the bottle of whiskey he was going to buy. Right. Well, and odds are the high is going to be a lot better from the fentanyl than it is from the safe supply. Yeah. So I know I've worked hand in hand, Tom, you can probably attest to this with a lot of individuals out here, you know, in my last role as a crisis worker that have been revived with naloxone four five, six times this week. And they're right back to getting their next fix of the same drug. Right. So if, if you're working with an individual like that and you got a safe supply and you have this street drug that they're addicted to, right? And that's where their tolerance level is at. What do you think they're going to go to when you give them a gram of safe supply or you can go get a gram of fentanyl? Yeah, that safe supply becomes currency to get what they want. Absolutely. And that currency gets pushed out into different markets that it's not in right now because where are the drug dealers going to use this safe supply if none of the addicts want it? Or it becomes a case of, hey, I just doubled up on my my usage, man. So uh, look, you know how many people I know, I still know today, they go to the methadone clinic every day. They get their methadone dose. They dose, and then they go out and they buy a fentanyl after that. Yeah. I mean, it, that's like commonplace in San yeah. Francisco. It's commonplace. Are there people that use methadone and then still fun- and and don't do that and function at a high level? Yes, there is. But we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about the those people that are what they call poly substance users, which mm-hmm. will use the methadone and then also use. Uh, the heroin or fentanyl on top of that. And I just wanted to note too about this fentanyl and how, how big of an issue is it, it is on the streets of San Francisco today, you can no longer purchase heroin. Heroin is not for sale anymore from anybody in San Francisco. You can't buy black tar heroin. Uh, everything is fentanyl, everything. And so it has really changed the game and it requires us to change our approach. And, you know, unless you're going to give out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of oxycodone or dilaudid to people to try to compensate for that fentanyl, uh, it, you're right. They're, they're going to use that and it's still not going to be enough or they're going to use it as currency to purchase the drug that they want because all that the cartel has to do is cut that fentanyl a little bit less and make it stronger 
and uh, and For there's sure. really there's really no prescription strength that's going to be strong enough to match how they could actually dilute their fentanyl and make it as strong as they want. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you see other drugs that are going to be on the horizon, like carfentanil, illicit carfentanil is going to be coming, which is a hundred times stronger sure. than fentanyl. So it just it just continues to get worse. So really, what's the answer? The answer is to get people off the dope. That's there, the there answer. Period. Right. And, and in order to do that, though, you need resources, mm-hmm. which means you need to build those therapeutic communities. You need to build those those treatment centers. Uh, and you also have to have a modicum or, or a, a model to get people into treatment quickly. You need yeah. a treatment on demand system, things like that. Uh, but at the same time, you still got to have the interdiction of the drugs. You got to make it harder for people to get high and easier for them to get treatment. Otherwise, you're just going to have people die. And that's exactly what's happening now. Yeah, 100 percent. We've talked about that lots, how, you know, if you're faced with the work that it takes to get into recovery or go back to the, you know, what do you know, which is how to hustle, how to use, which is the easier, softer way. Well, nine times out of 10, if there's no repercussions either, you know, we heard it at the, at the recovery capital, the carrot and the stick, right? If you take both the carrot and the stick away, nobody's going to choose the work that it takes to get into treatment or recovery when you can continue your drug use, right? I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but... And the irony behind that is that it's actually harder to maintain your addiction than it is to do the work of recovery. That's the thing that people don't understand. They're like, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. And now you've got all these activists that are behind them saying, yeah, it is too hard to get off drugs. But yet we have 23 million people in the United States in in active recovery right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, How many people live in Canada? What's the population of Canada, guys? 37 million. Okay, so there's 20 million people in the United States that are struggling with addiction or alcoholism right now. So imagine taking almost, the, you know, more than half, two-thirds of the population of Canada and saying everybody is going to be is a drug addict. What do you think your country is going to look like at that point? How do you think your systems of government and your systems of commerce and the economy and all that is going to is going to operate? Just it's not. It's going to it's going to fall country. apart. Yeah. It's not even a third world. It's going to just fall apart into complete anarchy and chaos, mm-hmm. right? That's that's what we're looking at. Like this is the crisis of our of our time now, and it will be our undoing unless we address the issue of homelessness, uh, which requires a variety of different things, and you address address the issue of drug addiction. But deeper than that, you have to address the issues of why someone is self-medicating in the first place. So mm-hmm. you need to look at things like investing in education and and investing in families, right? Uh, uh, you have to start looking at things like, uh, uh, you know, creating creating you know better opportunities for people to have careers instead of just a job, you know, things like that 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 are early on where you can kind of intercept and help prevent homelessness and prevent people from self-medicating in the first place. But you also have to regulate and make it harder for people to get the dope. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've taken that tool away. Literally, we've taken that tool away in California. And now we have just, I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a drug zone mm-hmm. in all the major cities in California, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, are all struggling with this and you've got, you know, your tents down by the river and your tents on the street corner. And in every one of those tents, somebody's hitting a bubble pipe for meth, a crack pipe, or they're smoking fentanyl. Every single one of them. And I think, you know, a really important point is to recognize even from your story, right? That guy, that man or woman owned a house and had a spouse and children six months ago, potentially. 
That's it's, right. And so it's not, it's, you know, it's not this lifetime of poor choices led people to where they are. And, uh, you know, I, I've had a little bit of a debate with somebody, um, <laughs> the, the social media warriors about, um, stigmatizing drug use. And I said, they're like, you know, you guys stigmatize drug use. And I'm like, yeah, we should, you know, is everybody's so quick to go, we need to destigmatize <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, why, why wouldn't we stigmatize drug use? It's not a good thing. <laughs> you don't want people doing illicit drugs, like telling them it's okay and making, you know, and like, I, I just, I couldn't get them to grasp that it is bad. Right. And I'm going right. like, I, I don't understand mm -hmm. how you can sit here and say, and again, you know, keyboard warriors, but attacking us for stigmatizing drug use. I'm like, well, you're damn right. We should be stigmatizing drug use. It's killing people. It's, it's poisoning people. People are dying. It seems like something that we should stigmatize. It's no different than mm -hmm. cigarettes, right? I mean, 30, 40 years ago, well, probably a little more than that, you know, doctors were advocating for smoking cigarettes. And now right. we've, all of a sudden, you can't smoke a cigarette on a public street because we understand that it kills people and we've kind of reversed course on it. But at the same time, like in San Francisco, you have an open drug market. Right. And it's like, well, you can't smoke a cigarette, but here's your daily dose of fentanyl. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, what's ironic is that there's a, you know, we have a large uh, addiction treatment provider in San Francisco that contracts with the city and county of San Francisco to the tune of millions of dollars a year. And their, their director of operations um, is someone that's in recovery. He's been clean from heroin for about 30 years and they're abstinent from drugs and alcohol. And I had a conversation with her and she looked at me and she straight up, she told me this quote. There are 17 million people in this country that are struggling with addiction. None of them want to get clean, so we should just support them, unquote. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, well, don't, wouldn't you rather support recovery for these individuals so that they could turn into people like you, who is a doctor now and you're actually treating people and all the stuff? Wouldn't you rather have them end up like you instead of just supporting them in perpetuity while they use fentanyl? And she didn't have an answer for that. Because they know what they're doing isn't right. They think what they're doing is compassionate and right, but actually it's it, it's going to come out later on. It's going to take a minute. Enough people are going to have to keep dying. It's going to take a minute, and they're going to realize that what they're doing is wrong. Look, let's look at Vancouver for a minute, okay? It's really important that we talk about this because it drives me nuts. Vancouver has a harm reduction model as their drug treatment model as a city. They have overdose prevention centers. Right, they always talk about insight and how nobody's died inside the safe consumption side and all that stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. How many overdoses did British Columbia have in January? Two hundred. How much overdose deaths did they have in February? Two hundred. How much did they have in March? Two hundred. So their overdose deaths are not declining despite all of those efforts. Mm -hmm. So then, what do you do? Right. If the goal here is to really save lives, outside of Narcan, which I think we all agree that we need to use and have more of out there. Uh, what are we really doing? We're just basically extending their life for a short period of time. And then the people are dying out anyway. Yeah. The only way to really save them is to put them in a place where they can get well. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a Dr. Anna Lemke. She's an addiction specialist, addiction doctor out of Stanford university. She wrote a whole book on that saying, look, it, the bottom line, you're not going to like it. If I say this, 
we're going to have to build facilities again, mental health facilities and drug facilities that got locks on their doors for people because there is a subset of people, not everybody, but there is a subset of people on the street that require intervention, mm-hmm. okay, that are struggling with addiction. They just do. I was one of those people. And I'm sitting here telling you today in recovery that that intervention saved my life. And I can't stress that enough. I want to scream that out from the rooftops, that there is a subset of people out there that need that kind of intervention. Otherwise, they're going to die Mm -hmm. because the drug that we're talking about now is fentanyl. The drug market has changed so quickly in the last couple of years. Uh, And our approach to treating the drug crisis out there is as if we're still thinking about people are using as if they were still using low-level, low-grade heroin. Yeah, We're not. We're using illicit fentanyl 100 times stronger. So our response needs to be 100 times greater, and it's not even begun yeah. to, to address it. I couldn't agree more with you, Tom. You know, that that subset you speak of, I can, off the top of my head, I can physically see six individuals that I know in this community who are, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to say, but they are going to die. And I'm amazed that they haven't already, right? Because of that, that substance that we're using out there, right? And, and these individuals need, just like you said, right? Some sort of intervention, because if they're left to their own devices, which is the, is the way that everything is going right now, right? Everybody has a choice, my body, my choice, all these things. We got to meet people where they're at. It's their choice, but are they cognitively able to make that choice on their own right now? Like when does capacity come into this, right? Like if somebody, I'm not going to stand by and watch somebody use this safe supply or use whatever it is. When I know addiction is going to lead you to jail institutions or death, that's the facts of addiction. And I'm not, I'm not going to hold somebody's hand as, as I walk them to their casket. There's no chance that's happening in my world. Well, and I've like, I work in uh, seniors housing as well as my other day job. And uh, you know, so many times, capacity becomes an issue in the seniors world, right? Do they have the capacity to make decisions? The, the decision-making mm-hmm. discussion that happens with many individuals. And, uh, but it seems like we forget that yeah. when we deal with addicts, it's like you, you, you are, you are, de- you are not of sound mind and you're making decisions. So, you know, it, it's, it's okay. It's okay for in a, in a senior's, housing situation for somebody to step in and go, you're not of right sound mind. So we're going to make decisions for you. Right. But when you apply that same metric to addicts, no, no, no. We have to honor your right to be able to make the decisions that you think are the best. It's wild, right? Because how many studies are out there? How many professional doctors you talk about? This is a disease of a mind and knowing, you know, that our stories and, and in my own experience, that compulsion, that obsession to use drugs overtook everything that was valuable in my life. I was not able to make a cognitive decision on my own that was going to be beneficial for anybody. And if we're going to look at it as that kind of a disease of the mind, when does capacity come into it? Because when you're overrun by drugs and addiction, you're not thinking of anything. You can't think of anything other than how am I going to get my next high? Like you said, eight, 10 hours a day on the hustle to get a dime bag of heroin, right? Right. And so you just said what I was going to say. It's perfect. Uh, look, I, when I was on the street and using, I could make decisions. Yeah. I, I was cognitive, but every decision that I made, every logical decision I made had to, had to end with me getting more drugs. Mm-hmm. That was that was it. That was the extent of my cognitive ability is it had to end with that. It's like, you know, people asked me when I was on the street, uh, if someone had come up to you and said, hey, man, 
are, are you struggling with addiction? Do you need help? Do you need to go to treatment? You know what my answer would have been? I would have looked at them and I would have said, no, I don't have an addiction. I'm good. I'm <laughs> my, just out here chilling, man. Fuck off. Mind <laughs> your, your business. Problem? Yeah, fuck <laughs> off, right? Leave me alone. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's the reality that we're dealing with. I mean, denial is a huge part of addiction. Yeah. Right? And even though I knew I have a problem, I'm not going to sit there and tell somebody, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. To, I had to be put in a position where I was ready to surrender. Mm-hmm. And, and that means accountability. And that accountability can mean many different things. It doesn't have to mean jail. But there has to be some type of accountability, and there that that piece has been removed with and and has not been replaced with any kind of infrastructure to uh, to replace that alternative. And that's what what I liked a lot about when I went up to Alberta and I was in Calgary and talking to people like Marshall Smith up there, <clears throat> and they're talking about recovery oriented systems of care, about building therapeutic communities for people, so that. So that in Alberta, they're actually creating an actual real alternative to jail mm-hmm. where people can go when when they are part of that subset that's breaking the law to support their addiction. I love that idea. Yeah. Right? We talk about that all the time here in, in California, reimagining public safety. You hear that all the time, right? And it drives me nuts because they want to reimagine and they – keep putting the cart before the horse and changing all these laws to decriminalize and release people from custody and release people from prison, which is all good. I support all of that stuff, right? We shouldn't be putting people who are drug drug addicts in jail if they're just a drug addict, right? Um, We should be putting them in jail if they're breaking the law to support their addiction, though. Those are two different things. So if you're out there breaking into cars, you need to go to jail for that, not because you're a drug addict, but because you were breaking into cars, and we need to, to separate those two things and consider that. Uh, but at the same time, they talk about all these changes, they've changed the law, and have done zero to create any infrastructure to support those changes. Mm-hmm. So here's an, here's an example. In 2014, in California, we passed a, pro- a state proposition called Proposition 47, which changed any kind of theft law where you stole less than $950 worth of items to a misdemeanor from a felony charge. It made it a misdemeanor, which basically means nothing happens to you. You get a citation. Yep. You don't even get arrested. Okay. At that time, also, they released 70,000 people, low-level offenders from prison back to counties and then eventually released them into, into the communities. At that time, there were 115,000 homeless people in the state of California. Fast forward to 2021, there's 160,000 homeless people in California. Now, is I can't prove the causation yet, although it's probably there, but there's definitely a correlation between those changes mm-hmm. and the increase in the homeless population and then the subsequent increase in drug use as a result yeah. of those people being on the street. <clears throat> and misdemeanor home- crime. <laughs> and Right, and misdemeanor yeah. crime. It all kind of goes hand in hand. So, And it's because they didn't build the infrastructure to support those changes. It's like, man, if you're going to do that, you better build a mass of housing. You better build a bunch of therapeutic communities. You better build a bunch of rehabs. You better have a bunch of good workable diversion programs for people, and they have not done none of that. Right. And so where do people end up? They end up on the street. When you're on the street and you've got nothing to do and you're suffering the daily trauma of being on the street, what do you do? You self-medicate, right? Yeah. And with the drugs that are out there to self-medicate with, specifically fentanyl and meth, it's really easy to become addicted. They become addicted. Now you're living in a tent. You're robbing and stealing to support your addiction. And you're basically being left to die. Yeah. Uh, just and just being told, hey, just wait there. Here's here's a here's a sleeping bag. 
just just stay there and be comfortable. I hear some needles for you too, and some pipes and foil. Just stay there and be comfortable, and we'll come back and check on you in five to ten years when we actually have housing built for you. That's exactly what is happening in the state of California right now, which is why homelessness is the number one political issue in California. There's an election coming up later on this year. My friend Michael Schellenberger is running for governor. Let's see if he makes it out of the primary so he can go up against our current Governor Newsom. And his whole sole issue, Schellenberger's issue, is homelessness. And he's right. He's right on this issue. Uh, it is the number one issue affecting the state. And we're the richest state and the richest country in the world. There's absolutely no excuse to have 161,000 homeless people on our streets today, many of whom are struggling with drug addiction. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing, man. So we are getting close to the end of the show here, and I feel like we say this with every guest lately. <laughs> we got to have you back. I think, you know, next season it should just be volume two of every conversation we've had in the last totally, <laughs> few months here. But, um, yeah, amazing conversation, amazing insight. Appreciate having you on so much. If you, uh, you got any last imparting words for our listeners? Just, you know, it's time that we all stop and take a hard look at what's driving homelessness. Yes, it's housing, but it's also drugs. We have to take a hard look at our drug policy and what we're doing in the United States and in Canada. Um, while it may sound good, it may look good in how we're trying to support drug users, all we're doing is perpetuating addiction. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is put a focus on treatment and a focus on recovery. And that recovery can mean a lot of different things. But I just want to remind everybody out there that accountability is a cornerstone of recovery. Yeah. Ask anybody that's in recovery in Canada or in the United States or Europe or anywhere if accountability was a cornerstone of their recovery and they're going to answer yes because in recovery you have to own your stuff. That's accountability. And that accountability can come in many forms and it can be compassionate. But yeah, we have to find that balance and we all have to work together to find that balance. We have to put down the tribalism and the ideology and we all have to come together and to try to find a solution to this because it's really not, it shouldn't be a political issue. It's a humanitarian crisis. And just like with any humanitarian crisis, communities come together to work together to help solve that crisis. Like when there's a hurricane or when there's an earthquake or something like that, people come together. Uh, but with drugs, we couldn't be more pitted against each other and entrenched mm -hmm. in these different ideological camps. And it's not doing anyone any good. In the meantime, the problem just gets worse and worse and worse. So I would ask for all the radical harm reduction folks that are out there, you guys need to slow your row a little bit. Uh, come to the table and start talking to us about recovery because there are those of us that have lived through this, that have real solutions to what's happening out there. And it's time for you all to start listening to us. And if you won't listen to us, we will find the people that will, mm -hmm. and we are going to carry that message up to our up to our elected leaders all the way at the very top, and they're going to hear us. and uh, And we're going to bring that recovery uh, framework to the table as part of the model of how we move forward in in North America in solving this addiction overdose crisis. I love your passion, man. It's uh, it's you know that that's been one of the most frustrating things I think is is, uh, you know, I know even me and Ryan, we've heard that there's these meetings happening and there's policy meetings happening. And I'm like, well, and they're like, oh yeah, you'll really like what comes out of this. And I'm like, well, you know, it's not even ego of wanting to be in the room, but it's like, did y'all ever think to ask us what we think would work? Like, and I don't mean necessarily we as in me and Ryan, I yeah. just mean the community of recovery, totally. for, you know, what actually worked instead of a bunch of policymakers that have never 
walked in our shoes that have never had those feelings that don't understand understand the complete crippling mindset of it yeah that's right why are you yeah. not asking us yeah what worked you know right have they ever have they ever shot dope yeah. have they ever slept on the street have you ever been so cold even when it's hot outside because you're just miserable and and alone on the street and scared and in withdrawal all mm-hmm. at the same time and dirty no you haven't you went to columbia university and you got your PhD, and now you write peer-reviewed papers, and you're making drug policy. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to stand by and let that happen anymore. Um, so that's you know that's where I'm coming from. I'm starting my own nonprofit. It's going to launch later on this year. It's going to be focused on sensible approaches to drug policy, uh, and we're going to you know my goal is to eventually serve as kind of a counterweight to or- orgs like the Drug Policy Alliance, mm-hmm. right out here on the West Coast. <laughs> For sensible approaches to drug policy, to drug policy, because drug policy and homeless policy are intertwined, the two interconnect in so many different ways, mm-hmm. and you know they're taking the harm reduction approach that they've taken with drugs and they're putting it towards homeless policy, and the problem's getting worse. Yeah. So at some point we need to draw the line and say, wait, you need to listen to different voices in this, especially voices with lived experience like all of us. And uh, man, that that's my goal, and I think we, I think. People are starting to listen. I think the winds are changing. Even here in San Francisco, the winds are starting to change. That's awesome, buddy. Love it. Um, where can people find you? So I know we kind of plugged your uh, your YouTube? YouTube channel. What else you got? Right. Well, see, I also have a website, www.tomwolf.org. Uh, it has just a bunch of news articles of all the stuff I've been in the media, both locally and nationally here in the U.S., there's also a button on there if you want to schedule me for an event. You can click on there and request uh, that I speak at one of your events. Uh, so we can talk about that. So go ahead and do that. And uh, I'm also the co-founder of the California Peace Coalition. You can reach us there at CaliforniaPeaceCoalition.org. And we're uh, a, a group of parents who've lost their kids to overdose, parents whose kids are currently homeless, people in recovery, and other uh, other activists in the community that are standing up and calling for uh, changes to our housing policy and changes to our drug policy here in California. And uh, yeah, and then you can find me out there on YouTube on Voices of Recovery. Uh, I'll be trying to post a new story every week of someone in recovery to get their take on what's really happening out there. So I thank you all for your support and uh, let's just keep pushing recovery as the solution because it really is the way out. Awesome, thank you so much for making time for us, buddy. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, brother. Thank you all. It was yeah. great to be here. Hey, I'm going to see you in October. We're coming down to San Fran. All right, man. Party time. Okay, <laughs> By party time, you mean cake and ice cream. <laughs> cake and ice cream and coffee. Lots and lots Woo! of coffee. <laughs> see you then. Right Thanks, on. Tom. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Thanks. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.